0: From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at ewtn.com.
1: This is a brand spanking new uh, email, yeah, email edition, Uh, mailbag edition is the word I'm looking for, of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Father John Trujillo is in the house. We're gonna empty out the mailbag a little bit here. Uh, if you would like to send an email to be part of a future program, that number uh, that number, how am I doing? That email address is openline at ewtn.com. Uh and put Monday or Father John or Father Trujillo in the subject line, and uh, we'll make it part of a future program. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program and your host as he is every Monday. Father John Trujillo, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> um, so we've got uh, a bevy of emails here, so a bevy. and so, and no, no phone calls today, please. So uh, we have no phone callers to accommodate. So feel free to pontificate to your heart's desire. Uh, the first question is from Paul, and he wants to know what is the role of man and woman in the family. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's a can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this well, is Father uh, John Trigilio <laughs> answering the question. John Trigilio. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Uh Well, I, it's, I think it's delineated
2: well in the rite of um, marriage, the sacrament. Uh, when you go to a wedding and the priest or deacon uh, reads the instruction to the couple, uh, that's a beautiful way of explaining how God intended uh, marriage to be. Uh, We see, it it, obviously, it goes back to Adam and Eve, and the two become one flesh, and Jesus then reaffirms that, and so the role of man and woman is as husband and wife, not husband and husband, or wife and wife, and just one husband, one wife, um, one man, one woman, and that covenant relationship is based on the desire and the uh, mutual efforts of both husband and wife to establish what they call a consortium vitae, uh, a community of, of life. So uh, being open to the newness of life, possible procreation uh, is one aspect, but also the um, permanent and faithful union of the husband and wife. So those three are are typically called the traditional ends of marriage going all the way back to St. Augustine. So if any one of those three would be missing, or if God forbid, if all three were missing, the Church would say that that's uh, an invalid marriage. So if a couple doesn't want to have kids um, and they do everything they can to prevent birth, or if one of them or both of them doesn't want uh, this to be a permanent union, or that they be a, a faithful union, uh, that that would invalidate the, the sacrament there. So husband and wife, and we... Uh, see this again too. St. Paul uh, gives us a nice little treatise uh, in his epistles. Now, the question is about, I know people bring up the issue about uh, uh, wives being uh, subordinate to their, to their husbands. You go back to the, to the root words that are used uh, in the Greek and the Latin, um, when the wife submits to the husband, that doesn't mean she becomes a slave. It doesn't mean he becomes some medieval feudal lord, and she's some vassal that has to, you know, uh, clean up the the mess he leaves. Uh, To submit, sub mitre, means to have, uh, unite one's mission with the other one. So, the wife's purpose is to uh, seek the sanctification of her husband, and likewise, the husband's purpose is to seek the sanctification of his wife. And they work at this mutually, and St. Paul even talks about you know um, you know a husband has to love his wife as he would love him his own self. If you're going to love yourself, <laughs> there's no way you're going to lord it over yourself. You're not going to be some kind of uh, tyrant or dictator. So that's something that was never uh, part of the equation. But the husband is head of the household because you have to have uh, a final say. If both one says yes, one says no. To decide, you know, uh, uh, you know, are we going to move? Are we going to stay? Are we going to name the kid Fred? Are we going to name him John? Uh, again, this doesn't make the husband an autocrat. He's not um, a pontiff in, in, in that regards, but it means that he has to use that authority with his wife, not against her or, or on, on on her. They work together, just like um, we would have in, in the scenario of Jesus being the bridegroom and the church being his bride. He doesn't lord it over, but the bride is there uh, uh, to submit herself to the husband's authority, and his authority is there for the purpose of establishing that mutual good for both of them.
1: You know, it's it's always been interesting to me in Sacred Scripture how um, things that people would have some contention with, in 90% of the cases... You really only have to read the next verse to figure out what's going on, yeah. and that's certainly the case here. If you want to, if you want to look at sacred scripture and and view this as some subservient relationship, you, you really only have to go to the next verse. You know where uh, you know we're told that uh, you know wives love your husband as Christ loved the church. Yeah, a L- little different story there, huh? Well, absolutely. That, and
2: again, that's the wonderful thing i think it it brings out something that father levis of happy memory would always say on our show on web of faith at ewtn was never take a text out of context otherwise you get a pretext so you have to always read what came before that particular line that people are throwing at you and what comes afterwards
1: uh carolyn writes in she says i left the catholic church when i was 15 but my struggle with rejoining is my understanding of the Eucharist. The teaching of the Catholic Church sounds like idolatry. How is the Church not making the Eucharist a false idol? Well, the only, the only way that that
2: could happen is if the Eucharist was not Jesus. Jesus said, this is my body. And so my body is me. So if you step on my foot, okay... Uh, I take offense, because you would do that on purpose. You say, well, it's not you. I'm just stepping on your toes. Well, my toes are part of me. So I am the extension of all the parts of my body. And likewise with Jesus, his body, whether it's his Eucharistic body uh, or his, um, you know, the mystical body of his church, you know, he says, if you do one something to one of the members, you do it to all the members. And, you know, I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. So in the Eucharist, it's not an idol because it is God and idolatry is when you're worshiping a false God. So if we take Jesus at his, at his word and we have to, and he's the son of God and sacred scripture is inspired by the Holy spirit. We believe it's infallible and inerrant. So when he says at the last supper, this is my body, this is my blood. We have to take it at at face value. And so it is worship. And we call it Latria. It's the worship adoration that's due to God alone. And so for Catholics, this is not a thing. It's a person. That's why we kneel before it. We genuflect. We uh, incense it. We uh, process with it. And we treat that sacred host in the same way I would treat if Jesus' physical, historical body was there in front of me.
1: Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Um, quickly before we go to our break here, Henry would like to know what degree of specificity in form and kind is necessary for a valid confession Can I just say sin against chastity or does it need to be more specific? Well, that's a good question and
2: particularly with sexual sins we don't have to get ever have to get graphic so one we don't want any names of, of but People's relationships, so if someone's having relations with someone that's not their wife, all right, or their husband, uh, and that's an adulterous uh, form of of sin against the Sixth Commandment, that's contextual. That's important for the the priest to know that, but they don't have to know who it was in terms of what their name was. Uh, If someone's having sex with, God forbid, a a minor, that is something that needs to be told because that makes it even more grave— um if someone had sex with someone against their consent okay rape uh that makes it even more uh grave uh if it was mutual consent it's still the sin of fornication so you don't need to get into any very particulars but we do need to know uh you know that someone had sexual relations with someone who is not their husband or wife and that how many times this happened so if this was a one-time thing you need to say that to the priest or this has happened a couple of times. Uh, this has been happening every week, every month, every year, or whatever. Uh, so frequency, in terms of general generality, I mean, uh, you. If you want to say I did, I had this, I did this in 18 times, that's okay. If you can't remember the exact number, you should say several or you know frequently. That gives the priest. Uh, an idea of what kind of advice to give you an appropriate penance so uh, again the details are not so much uh, in terms of like you're being on a witness on the stand at a trial but give the priest uh, help so he can give you good penance
1: Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Father John Trujillo is in the house. If you'd like to be on a future show, send us an email. Openline at EWTN.com.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: You know, Church Pop takes a fresh and fun look at the news that shapes our world, features engaging and inspiring and informative Catholic social media content. You can find it on Snapchat, Instagram, and on the web at churchpop.com. And you can get Church Pop directly to your inbox. Just visit EWTN.com. And click on subscribe. Again, a mailbag edition today of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. We're emptying out the mailbag today. Uh, Frederick writes in, Jesus' ministry, according to non-sacramentalists, got rid of ceremony and ritual. How can I refute this claim? <laughs> uh, well, he did
2: get rid of ceremony and ritual because, one, he went to the temple in Jerusalem, and you know that was the epicenter of ritual and ceremony in in Judaism. Uh, what he opposed were the human uh, accretions that occurred over time, and some of the uh, over 600 uh, aspects of the Mosaic Law that were heaped upon the people, and it became very odious and burdensome. That's what he opposed. But he obviously, at the Last Supper, took bread, he took wine, he blessed it. He broke it, he gave it. The same four verbs and, uh, of action that he used at the miracle of the loaves and the fish, he used at the Last Supper. And those are the same four uh, verbs that are used when the priest consecrates. And we use pre- very precisely those exact words he used uh, at the Last Supper. This is my body, this is my blood. And we use the exact things he used, uh, grape wine and wheat bread. Um, so that's very pre- uh, specific. Uh, baptism, water, and, and the invocation of the Holy Spirit, anointing with oil. A lot of the sacraments, all right. Jesus established them uh, in the in the uh, gospel, but he allowed the church to ascertain the, what we consider the uh, substantial um, matter, form, and intention. So the church didn't create the sacraments and didn't create sacred liturgy, but what she did was she defined them because uh, she has the authority to do that. Pope Ratzinger, uh, Pope Ratzinger excuse me, Pope Benedict, <laughs> <laughs> who was Cardinal Ratzinger, his spirit of the liturgy, it's fantastic, because he says in Exodus, the purpose of the Exodus is not political uh, independence. The purpose of Exodus is worship. Uh, Moses is told by God, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, comma, so that my people may worship me. That part of the sentence a lot of people don't, don't remember or forget or, or are even aware of. Let my people go so that they may worship me. So worship of God, right, uh, the liturgy, is done where God wants, how he wants, and when he wants. Uh, that was very specific in Exodus, and it's very specific when Jesus, uh, at the Last Supper, do this in memory of me. He rose on Easter Sunday, so that's why the Christians would gather for the breaking of the bread on Sundays.
1: The essence of religion is worship, the es- the essence of worship is sacrifice, right? Yep. Maria writes in, My Protestant husband thinks that as long as you have a relationship with Jesus, it doesn't matter what religion you practice. What might I be able to say to him?
2: Well, I think it would matter to Jesus if he established a church himself, and we believe he established the Catholic Church. So yes, he wants you to have a personal relationship, But he also, part of that personal relationship, if, you know, if if I built something, uh, let's say I, this is a very bizarre analogy, I know, but let's say as a dad, I built a little uh, playhouse for my kids. I would want them to use it, and they would honor me by using what I built for them. If they said, no, dad, we're going to go across the street and use the neighbors, but I built this for you kids. Yeah, that's nice, but we'd rather go across the street, but, you know, we still love you. I mean, part of my love for my dad would be to honor him by taking advantage of the things he gave me and made for me. And so Jesus established, he founded the church for us, and therefore us belonging to that church that he established. He says to Peter, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I, Jesus, will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. So it's not incidental. Uh, Belonging to the church is part part of our salvation, as because it's part of Jesus' plan obviously you can have a relationship with Jesus outside the church, but it's going to be very difficult, and it's not going to be as perfect as belonging to that mystical body he wants us to belong to.
1: Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Uh, Brent writes in, why does the Roman Catholic Church insist on celibacy for priests, but the Byzantine Church doesn't?
2: Well, uh, the Church has two lungs, as Pope John Paul the Great would often say, east and west. The Byzantine Church, or the east pro- more properly, the Eastern Catholic Church, which includes the Byzantine, Byz- like the Eastern Orthodox, uh, a man must be first uh, married before he's ordained. If he's ordained uh, a single man, he cannot get married. Their bishops uh, are not um, married. And in the Latin Church, the Roman Catholic or Latin Rite, uh, and was normative since the year 306 AD with the Council of Elvira. And then it was uh, Pope Gregory in the 11th century that made it uh, mandatory. So we've had a long history and tradition of it. However, as we've just seen recently, um, when we've had some Anglican priests uh, or uh, Lutheran priests uh, come into the church, as a married man, uh, they were allowed to retain their wives. But again, it's because they're being ordained As a married man Uh, they're not allowed to get married if they weren't married previously so celibacy is a discipline but it's been going it goes back not just to the uh, 306 but guess what Jesus never married okay the only apostle that we know for sure was married was st. Peter because there is a word in the old in the New Testament mother-in-law you can't have a mother-in-law unless you got a wife we don't know what happened to that wife if she was still around if she died All we know is that Jesus healed her and cured her, but uh, what happened afterwards, we don't know. The other apostles, we have no idea, but Jesus himself had no wife, and so in the Latin rite, uh, we're we're following that same tradition, although in the Eastern tradition, they're allowed to have married clergy, but only married uh, deacons and married priests, uh, again, if before ordination, not in the Episcopacy.
1: And, uh... St. Paul expounds upon the virtue of not being married in ministry, right?
2: Yeah, he says you're not torn between your wife and uh, you're, obviously you're married to the Church. Uh, but again, because I have lots of Byzantine and Eastern Catholic priest friends of mine, uh, I respect their tradition, they respect mine, and, but I know myself, I see celibacy as a gift and a blessing, not because I wouldn't want a wife and not because I wouldn't want children, but at three in the morning, if my kid's sick and then I get a sick call to go visit a parishioner, I don't have to be torn because I don't have that sick kid in the house. My wife is in in, in need of urgency. I can commit myself 100% uh, as a celibate ordained man, uh, and I find that a blessing.
1: Jeremiah would like to know, why do we have the same gospel four times? Why are there four gospels <laughs> instead of one? Well, actually, there is what one gospel,
2: because when you read, especially in, in the older Bibles, it says, the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to uh, Mark, the gospel. So it's one gospel, but there's four versions of it, so to speak, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I'll know, typically we say, um, Mark's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, but in actuality it's the one Gospel, because there's only one Jesus, and each of those Gospel writers uh, writes his Gospel inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they have a particular audience that they're uh, writing this for. So Matthew's writing for a Jewish audience, Mark for a Roman, Luke for a Gentile, and John for a Christian audience. Uh, They're telling you exactly what Jesus said and did, but they're picking out those parts they believe that they're audience uh, is going to be more concerned about.
1: All right, so write these down. You have three questions here, so we'll we'll stay on task here. Let me get a pen. (laughs) (laughs) Kathy writes in. uh, She's quoting from the Baltimore Catechism here, and she says she's finding it hard to put into words, quote, The Mass is the sacrifice of the new law in which Christ, through the ministry of the priest, offers himself to God in an unbloody manner under the appearance of bread and wine. And her questions are, what is the new law? Does the priest turn into Jesus at that moment? And is not the Mass also the Last Supper?
2: Okay, let's work backwards. (laughs) Yes, the Mass is the Last Supper, uh, because you said, do this in memory of me. So we believe that the Mass is the Last Supper, but it's also Calvary because there's a separate consecration of the bread and a separate consecration of the wine. And so when you separate body from blood, you've got death. So we have the reenactment of Calvary in a real but unbloody fashion. That means there's not human blood all over the altar, thank God. Uh, it looks and tastes like uh, bread and wine, but it is. The substance is cha- has changed now into the, Jesus's body and blood, soul and divinity. So the Mass is Good Friday, Holy Thursday, and Easter Sunday, because when you receive communion, you're not receiving a dead Christ, you're receiving the risen, glorified Christ in Holy Communion. Um, So the priest, at the moment, he's uh, ordained, all right? He's ordained um, as an alter Christus to act as another Christ in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. So I was configured to Christ at the moment of my ordination. And whenever I celebrate the sacraments, I act in his name. Now, when I misbehave, when I commit a sin, when I do things I'm not supposed to, that's me. That's John Trujillo doing those things. But when I say, I absolve you, when I anoint someone, when I say, this is my body, this is my blood, that's Jesus speaking through me. So I am an altar Christus, uh, since the moment of my ordination, but I only act in Persona Christi when I'm celebrating one of the sacraments. And the new law, the new law is the new is the new covenant that Jesus established and was, first of all, celebrated uh, at the Last Supper, because remember, the old law was uh, remembered and celebrated at the Passover meal that was done every year, the Seder meal. And then Jesus transformed that into Uh, The Eucharistic uh, celebration, which we now call the Mass, was once called the breaking of the bread. Uh, So that's the new law, the new covenant, and that's when that was inaugurated. Uh, Obviously, uh, the, the, the Paschal Mystery involves Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. So you can't just say it was just one day, it was all three.
1: Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. We are emptying out the mailbag here today. So if you would like to send us an email for a future program like this, simply send the email to openline at EWTN.com. That's OpenLine at EWTN.com. Or you can uh, and put something in the subject line like Father Trujillo or Monday or Father John if you don't want to take a swing at Tregilio. Uh, or you can, also so text, easy. Yeah, you can also text <laughs> us your question. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: Again, a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Father, we've got a an email here, a question from Steve in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. <laughs> says, hello, I would like to ask Father Tregilio a question. If life begins at conception, which I wholeheartedly agree with, he says, why does the church not offer funerals for babies who die of miscarriage or other natural prenatal causes?
2: Yeah, that's a very logical question. Um, the funeral mass is first and foremost offered for the soul of the deceased. And so uh, the reason why we don't have a a funeral mass uh, for uh, a miscarriage or say children who are uh, killed in abortion is that we believe that their soul is already with God. God, So uh, there's no necessity for them to have that mass celebrated for them. Now, I know it's comforting for the parents. And so the priest can, have a mass celebrate, a memorial mass for that uh, child because they're certainly a human being. And I've had masses offered uh, many times uh, with the parents there who lost the child. Uh, it was a miscarriage or like I had a, a baby sister. She was only three days old when she was uh, when she passed away. She had fluid in her lungs back in 1960 and they had no way of treating it back then. Um, so whether it's the Misa de Angelis that they used to celebrate in the old days, but the funeral mass as we know it, it's offered first and foremost for the deceased, and then secondly, for the comfort of the family. So we believe that you know if you die in innocence, in the state of grace, you know you, you go to heaven. You didn't even have a chance to uh, commit a sin, and if you know you were baptized or you there was the uh, baptism of desire, then... Again, we believe that that person is with God, so that's why we don't have an elaborate um, funeral mass. But a mass can be offered, um, you know, like I said, uh, at the discretion of of the family and and the priest. It just wouldn't be a full blown funeral mass, so you wouldn't have uh, a casket and um, you know all that other um, uh, aspects of it, but. Uh, again, it's out, it's not it's not done because out of necessity. It's done more out of solicitation uh, for the family.
1: Uh, Pam is in Collierville, Tennessee, and she says, "Why does the Catholic What? Excuse me. What does the Catholic Church say about the, the laying on of hands on the sick? Specifically, who is allowed to do it? Priests, deacons, lay people? Question. And in what circumstances is it practiced?" And she says, "Does the Catholic Church support the organization, the International Order of Saint Luke?" She said it's a healing ministry that was started by an Anglican priest, uh, Father John Gaynor Banks, and his wife in 1932. And she says, "May Godly rich, richly bless you all." She says she's not Catholic, but she's beginning RCIA in the week she wrote the email. And uh, she says, "Thank you," and she loves listening to EWTN.
2: Great, that's wonderful, and um. I'm not familiar with that particular group, but I do know that uh, the laying on of hands uh, can be done by anyone. Uh, and any Catholic, any Christian, uh, any person can lay hands and, and, vo- and ask for God's healing upon the person um, because you're doing that as an intercessor. Uh, as long as the people realize that this person who's laying on hands doesn't have they themselves powers to heal, but they're asking for healing. Uh, that's the key there, because sometimes when you watch on television, uh, it, it's kind of murky there on what's happening, you know, is is, is it the uh, televangelist himself who's causing the cure, or is it God working through them? Now, I, as a Catholic priest or um, a bishop who's administering the sacrament of the sick, um, there's an option of laying on hands, but today, <laughs> during the COVID times, um, you know, we're even a little bit more... Um, particular and careful uh, of, of not having that direct contact, but we will anoint, you know, with our thumb on the person's forehead and on their hands. Um, but the laying on of hands is a beautiful gesture. Um, parents can do it. In fact, I say to parents at the baptism, you know, as a parent, you give your parental blessing on your son or daughter. You just take your thumb and make the little cross on their forehead, um, and you can also let, impose hands and ask for God to heal them, destroy them to good health. Um, but to have a particular ministry, I don't think the church, because it's not a sacrament, and a, and, but it may be a sacramental. Uh, I know at, at healing masses, um, also at charismatic uh, masses that are recognized by the church, there are uh, laying on of hands. But we want to make a distinction that there's a difference between when someone's laying their hands and asking for healing and when a bishop lays hands on a man and ordains him a deacon or a priest or a bishop uh, that's a completely different thing that's a sacrament uh, that's uh, very special uh, invocation of the holy spirit but the simple laying on of hands and praying for someone's healing okay the, the, there's nothing reserved to that
1: uh, again a very special mailbag edition of ewtn's open line monday so we're not taking your phone calls today uh, Farah would like to know what is the best argument I could give to my atheist friend for the existence of God. Put Ooh. on your Thomistic beretta. <laughs> well,
2: that's uh, that's a good question, and I would say you know you can look this up in the uh, Summa Theologica of Saint Thomas Aquinas, but also it's in um, our book Catholicism Over Dummies. It's called the, the Five Ways of, of Proving God's Existence. Now. These in and of themselves are not going to make an atheist go, oh my gosh, you know, I should have had a V8, I didn't realize that. Uh, but it's going to, it shows that the, the knowledge of the existence of God is reasonable, and certainly there's aspects of God like the, the Trinitarian, there's th- uh, three persons and one God, that can only be known by faith because that's divinely revealed. But that there is a God, even the Greeks and Romans, They went through their polytheistic phase, but when they became more philosophical, they realized there's a supreme being. And so Thomas uses this uh, argument of motion, and that's not physical motion, but it's moving from potentiality to actuality. So, you know, you have a potential universe, then it becomes an actual one. And so there's a prime mover who who does all that. You have uh, the the, um, uh, uncaused cause. You know, you have cause and effect. Uh, you know, you see a guy laying on the floor and there's a knife in him. Well, that just didn't happen by itself. Somebody uh, stabbed that fellow. So there's a cause and effect. And so we have God as the uncaused cause. We have God as the necessary being because everything is contingent. He's the one thing that is necessary. We have God's governance over uh, all of creation. His divine providence uh, keeps everything going. And and we have uh, his governance that you know, there's this uh, hierarchy of being. So you have uh, inanimate matter, you have uh, plant life, vegetable, then you have or, um, animal, human, angelic, and then you've got, obviously, the supreme being himself. So the five ways, or the Via of St. Thomas Aquinas, shows that it's reasonable that there is a God. Uh, it also shows that one can know there's a God without necessarily having the gift of faith but anything else about God, you know, we we have to certainly rely upon what He has revealed to us.
1: And then, of course, you know, many of us here in Birmingham, Alabama, are aware of the sixth proof of the existence of God, and that's the Alabama Crimson Tide. <laughs> okay, <laughs> our, our, I'll take your word. <laughs> our, our, our Auburn, our yeah, or or bacon. Our producer tells us that's another. <laughs> hey, hey, at the price it is now, I don't know. <laughs> oh goodness uh scott would like to know how do i explain the papacy better to my protestant brothers and sisters specifically how would i defend it biblically well i would just have your friends read matthew 16 uh where jesus
2: says to peter thou art peter and upon this rock i will build my church now jesus uses those pronouns i so jesus is establishing his church on saint peter and he gives him the keys of the kingdom uh, those keys are symbolic. He didn't give him a fob to his, uh, you know, his Fiat or his uh, Volkswagen. Uh, these were symbolic keys. But that is something that shows authority. A king would give literal keys to his uh, chamberlain so that he could have a key to the treasury where the king would uh, keep the gold so he could pay the troops, and that's where the taxes were kept, and then a key to the prison so he could lock up his enemies, but also when he felt benevolent and merciful to let them let out. So Jesus says, "I give you these keys." It's they're symbolic; they weren't tangible keys, but the authority. Whatever you declare bound on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven. So that full gamut of full authority he gave to Peter and not to the other apostles. And then we see um, at the resurrection, when uh, Peter and John run to the tomb, John gets there much quicker because he's young and spry. Peter's a little bit along in the tooth, as we would say, but John doesn't go in; he waits for Peter because Peter is recognized as the head of the apostles. It's Peter to whom uh, Paul says, "I must go see Peter," uh, even though Paul was, you know, chosen uh, on his way to Damascus. He realizes that Peter uh, is the head of the church, and it's at the Council of Jerusalem that Peter convenes and um, chairs that that, that meeting. So we see in Scripture and then in sacred tradition, uh, you know, from Peter all the way down to Pope Francis, they're called successors of St. Peter. There's been an unbroken chain of, of popes or bishops of Rome, starting with Peter, going all the way now uh, to our current one that we have here. So Matthew 16 is the most blatant, explicit foundation uh, for Petrine uh, primacy and ministry.
1: Uh, again, a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, not taking your phone calls today. Francis asks, when Jesus called Mary woman in the Gospels, how does that relate to Revelation 12? Well, uh,
2: at, when Jesus, first of all, it, he uses it at the um, wedding feast of Cana, uh, when she says they ran out of wine, and he says, woman, uh, what is to you is to me. Uh, it's gunai uh, in, in the Greek. Uh, that word "woman" is used also in Genesis chapter three, when uh, the serpent is, is is cursed, and God says, "I'll put enmity between you, meaning the serpent, the devil, and the woman." Now, the woman isn't Eve; it's gonna it's the the woman who's going to give birth to the Messiah, and so Mary is the woman foretold in Genesis three. She's the woman that Jesus refers to uh, in John's uh, gospel with the wedding feast of Cana, and then at the foot of the cross when he says to uh, Mary, woman, behold your son, and then he says to John, behold your mother. Revelation chapter 12 makes it very uh, clear too. There appeared in the sky a great sign, the woman clothed with the sun, on her head a crown of 12 stars and the moon beneath her feet. So Mary is that Woman that's referred to in all those instances.
1: Again, we're not taking your phone calls today. It's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Um, we have an email from Mark. It says, How did the early church decide on the biblical canon? Why were some books left out? Well, that's good because there was no list that was in, in, the, in the text
2: itself. So, um, you know, no one, uh, neither Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, said, and by the way, here's, here's the other guys, you know, I recommend you read them. Uh, it was the Church who established uh, through councils, but especially through the authority of, of the Pope and, and, the, and, the, and the bishops in union with him, that the canon would be established. And it wasn't, like, ironed out solid uh, until, like, the 2nd or 3rd century, because remember, uh, Christianity was illegal and they had to hide, they were in the catacombs. But when Pope uh damasus entrusted the, the the job of translating the old and new testament from hebrew and greek into latin to saint jerome uh he esta- that that's the first time we have the establishment and compilation of the one volume bible that we now have as opposed to separate little books we have uh the one bible the old testament new testament and in that vulgate that first uh, uh, latin edition we have the 46 books of the Old Testament, uh, which is seven more than that are in the uh, the Protestant Old Testament, because Martin Luther pulled those seven books out uh, for 1,500 years. There was the, no uh, problem with those seven books uh, with uh, Christians anywhere. But when Luther then uh, has an issue with uh, the doctrine of purgatory, he wants to pull out Maccabees and figures, well, I can pull out all... Seven of these at one shot. The Church and Trent solemnly uh, and defined that, you know, these are the books of the Bible. That didn't mean that up until Trent it was, it was up for debate or issue, no. The canon was established way back in, in the 200s, but no one contested it formally until the time of the Reformation. That's why, you know, it wasn't argued and discussed at Nicaea or uh, Ephesus or Chalcedon.
1: Uh, Maurice says, how does the Catholic Church interpret the phrase, born again? Well, we interpret
2: that as being real, and we're born again in baptism. Because when Jesus has that little dialogue with Nicodemus, he said, unless one is born again of water and the Spirit, okay, and... Nicodemus said, well, how how can I go back into my mother's womb? You know, uh, he's seeing it as a physical birth. And Jesus says, no, uh, it's not a physical, but it's being born again. And that's why the church often refers to the baptismal thought as the spiritual womb. Just like a baby is surrounded with water uh, while it's uh, he or she's in their mother's womb. uh, And when it's time for the baby to be born, you know, the mother says, oh, my water broke. So, water is always a sign of new life. And so, when the baby's baptized or the adult's baptized, they become a child of God. They're adopted by God into his family. Jesus becomes their brother in a sacramental way at baptism. Now, that means that the person themselves has to reaffirm this. That's why confirmation, all right, is uh, a sacrament of initiation as well as. Is baptism in Holy Eucharist so someone can be baptized and then later on say I want nothing to do with this but they become born-again at baptism just as when someone you know says born in the United States you know you you become a citizen Uh, you may not realize it because you're too young you can renounce that if you want later on but the fact is you become a citizen at that moment and so one is born-again at that moment now when other people say well that's when i accept jesus as my lord and savior that is a confirmation of the fact that you were born again uh, or that you are called to be born again but water and the spirit okay nowhere does jesus say you're born again through words you're born again through water and the spirit and that's the sacrament of baptism
1: Uh, be sure to check out an encore presentation of women of grace later tonight 3 a.m. Eastern Time, if you missed the uh, airing of that uh, earlier today. Um, As we tape this, that show has not taken place yet, so I don't know exactly what was on the show, but I can guarantee you it was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic, and the host is incredibly attractive. So uh, check out Women of Grace with my wife, Johnette Williams, at 3 a.m. Eastern Time, the encore of today's program right here on EWTN Radio. Uh, Linda would like to know, what is a good way for me to explain the doctrine of purgatory to my Protestant family? Where can I find biblical support for the idea? Okay, uh, well, obviously I just mentioned
2: a few minutes ago, the book of Maccabees, which is in the Old Testament, that we consider durocanonical as part of the canon of Scripture. In the Protestant Bible, um, many times you might find this in what they call the Apocrypha. But it's interesting is that many of these Protestant Bibles still have those uh, seven books, but maybe at the back, okay, they won't have it in the same sequence that we do in the Catholic Bible. But in the Book of Maccabees, we have this instance where these very faithful and good and loyal um, Hebrew soldiers fought bravely for defending uh, their faith, And then when they were burying their bodies, they found all these lucky charms and amulets and rabbit's foots and all this other stuff on them, and that would be considered the sin of idolatry. So they figured, well, you know, it's kind of sad. They died bravely for the faith, but then they also had these little idols or what would be perceived as potential idols. So they said, let's pray for them. Well, if they're already dead, and if you're in hell, prayers won't help you. If you're in heaven, you don't need them. So there must be something in between heaven and hell that prayers for the dead would be of some benefit. And so from Maccabees all the way to today, we've had the wonderful custom of offering prayers for the dead in case someone uh, is in purgatory. And purgatory isn't a place, it's a state, a state of preparation where one is cleansed, and we hear about the cleansing, uh, the preparation uh, for the glory of heaven. Uh, Remember the wedding garment uh, that God is cast out in the parable, because he's not wearing the wedding garment. Uh, Purgatory is a way of getting the wedding garment. Uh, It's temporal punishment due to sin. That means that's all those uh, unconfessed uh, venial sins, but also all the attachment to sin I've had. So let's say I committed some really nasty sins in the past, they're forgiven, I went to confession, but I still have some pleasant or happy memories of those. I'm sorry, but I still have a little Say, well, you know, I, I did enjoy that. Purgatory allows me to see sin as God sees it. It's like when I went to the allergist for the first time and he said, you're allergic to dust bites. I don't know what he was talking about. He showed me an electron microscope picture of one. I said, oh my gosh, those are hideous looking. That's how God sees sin, in his pure form. And purgatory allows us to see evil and sin as he sees it, and that's a, a state of cleansing.
1: Uh, Timothy says I brought a Protestant friend to Mass and when the priest said pray that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable he asked what is my sacrifice and I didn't know how to answer him okay well the priest sacrifice is obviously the
2: bread and the wine uh, as offering the son to the father but when he says my sacrifice and yours the sacrifice of all of us who are not consecrating at, at the Mass okay, only the priest does that we're putting ourselves on that altar symbolically. And so we're saying, Lord, take me as I am, all my fears, all my dreams, everything, take my will, everything I am, I surrender to you. If especially, I surrender my will uh, to your will. And so we're offering up with the priest our, our sacrifice of ourselves. So, uh, as John the Baptist said, I must decrease so he can increase. St. John the Cross talks about dying to self. Uh, the dark night of the soul so that's the sacrifice the, the, um, the um, or, uh, what you call it the um, lay faithful okay there's the priesthood the ministerial priesthood and the priesthood of the baptized we celebrate that baptism of the priesthood of the baptized when at mass we offer ourselves with the priest who's offering up uh, Jesus to the father
1: and Perry says, how does the idea of sola scriptura compare with Catholic tradition?
2: Well, they're not in competition, okay? Um, now, when you say sola scriptura, scripture alone, it's not in scripture. <laughs> that's the irony. is That phrase, uh, scripture alone, is only mentioned by St. James when he says it's—or it. Or excuse me, that's uh, sola fide. Um, nowhere in scripture does it say it's only scripture Uh, that has uh, the the revealed uh, revelation of God, because before it was written, it was oral. People said what Jesus uh, said and did, and St. Paul says, what was handed on to me, hand-on is the translation of traditio, all right? The word tradition means the hand-on. So people verbally, orally, uh, spoke, told people what Jesus said and did, and then later... Holy Spirit uh, inspired them to write, and then it was the sacred tradition that determined which books were in the Bible. So you don't have a competition between sacred tradition and sacred scripture. They work hand in hand because they're coming from the same source. It's God who's the source of sacred tradition and sacred scripture. So if you think of sacred tradition as only being something from the church, yeah, then you're going to get yourself in trouble. But if it's God who's revealing this, he reveals it either verbally or orally.
1: How much stuff did Jesus write down? Nothing. (laughs) Except in the dirt. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) There you go. And then finally, as we uh, bring this uh, mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line to a close, Gary would like to know, what do Catholics believe about the end times?
2: Well, we don't have much specificity because the book of Revelation or the uh, apocalypse is very allegorical. Uh, I highly recommend, you know, Dr. Scott Hahn's book uh, on the book Revelation that, that describes it as a, a divine liturgy. We believe at the end, okay, we have the four last things of an individual. You have death, uh, judgment, uh, heaven or hell. Uh, then we have at the end of the world, we have the end of the world, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and general judgment. So that's what we believe. Now, all the other stuff, about, uh, you know, millennialism, premillennialism, millennialism post-millennialism, rapture. Those are all things the Church has not made any decision on, and, you know, you can believe that or not if you want, but we, mu- we are to believe as Catholics that there is a second coming, there is a general judgment, there's a resurrection of the body, and then the
1: end of the world. Those are the things we have to believe in. And when is that happening? We have no idea. <laughs> well, you're not much help. Because <laughs> Jesus
2: says, "You know not the uh, the time or the hour," so if we gotta listen to Him. He would know.
1: Yeah, and that's what I always hang my hat on. And it's it's just it's interesting because uh, evangelical and Catholic alike, some of our brothers and sisters can get themselves so screwed in the ground about this uh, end time stuff. And He clearly told us, nobody knows. You should worry more about your particular
2: judgment when you die. That determines where you're going to end end up for eternity. End of the world isn't going to change anything. So general judgment will not overturn particular. It's not like going to the Supreme Court and, you know, getting out of jail.
1: Father, would you leave us with a blessing?
2: May I bless Almighty God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit descend upon you, remain with you forever. Amen.
1: Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow, Father Wade Menezes is in the house. Until we get together then. God bless.